We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome to Steve again with Sense of Fidelium coming at you with our continuing episodes of the Councils of the Church with Dr. Allen and Finster, our guru on church history. Uh, thank you again, Doctor, for doing this. Uh, I told you off camera, this has been on my end. I, you got at least one fan I know of, me. <laughs> <laughs> and all these other guys don't want to hear it. I, there's been quite a few people watching, so we appreciate you doing this. Thank you. Thank you very much. No problem. So, the second Council of Nicaea, which everyone knows everything about, right? The Nicaea. <laughs> well, um, yeah. Uh, so, the second Council of Nicaea is the seventh ecumenical council, mm -hmm. and uh, it's the last one which the Orthodox accept as an ecumenical council. Mm -hmm. And if you're if you're <laughs> a uh, if you're a very conservative. Uh, kind of Protestant who likes dressing up as a Catholic, then you probably accept the first seven ecumenical councils as well. Um, but there aren't many of them. Um, uh, so um, uh, it's, um, it's also, it's at a very, very important uh, moment in church history, a sort of joining point or a cutoff point. Um, it, it, it comes just after the end of the patristic age in church history. So, uh, and this is a really, really tricky concept to explain. Um, uh, the the the, um, the Council of Trent in the 16th century and the First Vatican Council in the 19th century, they uh, solemnly defined that no Catholic may ever interpret Scripture contrary to the unanimous opinion of the fathers of the church right so so they're they're a very big deal okay they're they're kind of like a a back backdoor infallibility um they're 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 a, they're a big um that's a silly way of putting it but anyway they're they are a uh, they're a um uh it went this this is very difficult to explain but but um the, the First Vatican Council distinguishes between what's called the Extraordinary Magisterium, uh -huh. which is some uh, defined nuggets of text which you can put in front of somebody and say, do you subscribe to that text? And they say no, and you can say, great, you're excommunicated, get out. Um, uh, and then it distinguishes that from, well, it doesn't actually use the term Extraordinary Magisterium, but but anyway, um, but it uh, it that term is distinct. It is actually used in a, in a few places. The extraordinary the term extraordinary magisterium, but so uh, it uses the other term which for the other thing, the thing that isn't the extraordinary magisterium, which is the ordinary and universal magisterium, uh -huh. um, and uh, and that is um, the whole deposit of faith. That's that's everything that's ever been taught. Um, uh, by God to man publicly for our salvation uh, as it is transmitted f down through every single generation from the death of the last apostle to the end of the world so properly speaking when you're trying to find out what the uh, what what God has revealed on this topic or that topic the place you should be going to first and foremost is the ordinary and universal magisterium what 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 saint vincent of lorraine one of the fathers of the church said was taught everywhere always and by everyone mm -hmm. right and and there are various different ways of of getting at this ordinary and universal magisterium um uh, for example, there is the 
the unanimous opinion of all the bishops in the world. If they unanimously agree on something, it'd be surprising. But if they do, that would count as part of the uh, the um, ordinary and universal magisterium. There's a unanimous opinion of all the faithful. There's the um, unanimous opinion of theologians. Uh, Pius the Ninth cited this, but don't panic. This means theologians in the sense of actual Catholic theologians who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and the irreformability of the extraordinary magisterium. That's a much smaller group of people than, uh, than the group of people conventionally described as theologians uh, nowadays. Um, and, Contrary um, to what the Facebook would tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, one way of, of trying to find that kind of consensus theologians would be to look at all the doctors of the church, for example, who are, who are a different group from the fathers of the church, doctors of the church are still accruing, whereas there are no more fathers being made. Um, that's why they cost so much on eBay. Um, <laughs> and uh, so the, um, but the most, uh, um, and of course, uh, the, what the scriptures say Right, because the church teaches that the scriptures are holy without error. So, so the, the teaching of the scriptures themselves constitute also the teaching of the ordinary and universal magisterium. But of course, every heretic has their own made-up interpretation of, of, of every passage of scripture. Because if they didn't, they'd have to admit they were wrong. So, um, so, so, so the in a way, the clinching, the most comprehensive and important way of ac accessing the universal and ordinary magisterium which contains, unlike the Extraordinary Magisterium, which accumulates over time, um, the uh, Ordinary and Universal Magisterium contains the entire deposit of faith. So the um, the easiest and best way of finding that is, um, is through uh, reading the scriptures with the Fathers. Right? So the Fathers are tremendously important. Um, uh, and so one way of looking at this is that um, in order for God to transmit divine revelation to the entire human race, uh, he ha it has to be understood. It's no good if if the um, if the scriptures were written, if everything was contained, if the whole of the deposit of faith was contained in scripture, which some people think it's not just a heresy to think that. that the, the Protestant heresy of, uh, uh, on that subject is is called. Um, the formal sufficiency of scripture mm -hmm. which means that if you just pick up a copy of the bible you just somehow know as so long as you read it you somehow know the entire deposit of faith and you don't need anything else you don't need any skills of interpretation you don't need to even read the original language well they don't say that because it would expose how ridiculous it is but uh, but yeah but the um you, you just know it somehow it's sufficient it's a magic glowing book it falls out of heaven you pick it up and then you just know what the um uh, that's the formal sufficiency but then there are some people as a theological opinion which has never been defined and never been condemned so so whether it's true or not is, is still an open question called the material sufficiency which is the claim that some um, that the uh, that everything that's in revelation is in the bible but that doesn't mean that uh, it doesn't mean that it isn't in other places and it doesn't mean that you could work out what it was just by holding the glowing magic book right you'd still have to interpret it correctly you'd need the context and the interpreter as well as the text to be guaranteed and that's what God does. He guarantees the interpreter through the magisterium and he guarantees the context through the fathers of the church um, uh, because of, because the, there is no formal sufficiency of scripture. Anyway, so so um, just imagine for a moment that the deposit faith is entirely contained in the Bible. It might not be, it might be other places as well where it's only contained in some instances, but the, that deposit then has to be received so that it can then be passed on. And if it's received in such a way that you don't understand it, then it would be no use. So for example, the, the language of ancient Crete is called linear A and nobody understands what it means anymore. There isn't enough of it left, and there aren't any. There's no Rosetta Stone. I don't mean the the, the popular language series. I mean the actual stone. Uh, there's there's no there's no Rosetta Stone not to decipher this this language linear A. That's why we call it linear A because we don't know what it's actually called. Um, and, Put that uh, in your CV. Hey, he speaks linear A. Yeah, yeah, it would be good. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the um, so if 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 the scriptures are written in linear A. Uh, well, that would be a bit useless, wouldn't it? Because I mean, there'd be no way of knowing what they said. Um, so, uh, so the people who originally received the scriptures have to have understood them correctly in order for them to be passed on, right? Mm -hmm. That's why the fathers are so important. They're the original context in which the deposit of faith was received. So, uh, so there's various conventional tests for for a father um, that they're that they're venerated as a saint. Uh, that they are um, uh, that they that they are 
they they are ancient with the antiquity the test of antiquity um that they um have surviving writings and that they are sort of an ecclesiastical approbation that they're sort of recognized as such by the church but in a way that's the same thing as being venerated as a saint so really it boils down to kind of uh it boils down to three tests really uh, are they venerated as a saint at least through the whole roman rite um uh, uh ideally through the entire church um are they um are they uh, do they have surviving writings and uh, are they very old so 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 the very old bit is the most subjective bit and uh, so conventionally the last two people to be venerated as fathers of the church are saint john of damascus who died in december 749 and um saint bede the venerable who died saint bede forgive me i've forgotten what you died 735 he died in 735 so the um uh, he's the only the English, the church and he comes from my home diocese in england so so, so does he? Very, he does yes ah. um and uh, so um uh yeah so so they're conventionally so basically 750 is kind of the cutoff period point and the reason why is because the context in which divine revelation was originally given to the church has gone by 750 right because the roman empire has disappeared the roman empire ruled the court of the human race for half of a millennium and then it got trashed in the west by the germans and trashed in the east by the muslims and uh, really, you know, if you think of the Enlightenment and liberalism as just the extension of Germanic barbarianism, it's been the, it's been the, uh, it's been Islam and and Germanic barbarians who've been the church's problem for her entire history. But anyway, um, uh, so the, um, so uh, so basically, and so and you look at Bede and Damascene, they both don't live under the Roman emperors. So so Bede lives in in Anglo-Saxon barbarian England in his Benedictine monastery, um, and. Um, uh, and St. John Damascene lives under the Muslims in Damascus and then later in uh, Jerusalem. But they're both still, you know, sort of referring to the emperor to some extent. You know, they're still on the fringes. Gregory the Great, who, who of course, he lived, he lived 100 years earlier than Bede, but, but Bede's writing a lot about him. Uh, he's still dating his documents by the the regnal year of the emperor and things like that. So, so they're on the very fringes, but that whole Roman world is 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 almost gone and really by the time we get to the second council of nicaea the roman empire such as it is is basically made up of uh not all of what we now call turkey and uh and a little bit more than the european bit of what we now call Turkey. so it's not much bigger really it might even be total well i suppose they've got they've got southern italy as well but i mean it, it's very small mm -hmm. it's a very small thing uh, and it's no longer the the overwhelming context of the overwhelming number of Christians. So, as it were, the the world of of, of the fathers of the church is about to die, is is dying, uh, and that's why Nicaea Nicaea two, the Seventh Ecumenical Council, is is kind of the first council on the other side, as it were. So it's still held in the Roman Empire, but it's um, but it's uh, it's very it's a very different place. So, um, uh, and, and the reason it arose is connected to um, this transformation. Um, so we looked at last time at, at Constantinople III, um, which occurs as a result of a kind of panic because of the, the Persians near destruction of the Roman Empire at the beginning of the, uh, at the beginning of the uh, 7th century. And um, and, and that leads to the creation of the heresy of uh, monothelitism, uh, which is eventually uh, disposed of at the uh, Third Council of Constantinople. And then, um, and then uh, there's another panic about this time about the Muslims at the beginning of the eighth century. And this leads to the creation of the heresy of iconoclasm. And it's this heresy of iconoclasm, which is eventually got rid of at the uh, Second Council of Nicaea in the year 787. Okay, so that's that's the basic framework that's going on. Now, uh, the, the dynasty of the Emperor Heraclius, uh, who created the Council of, who created the heresy of monothelitism, uh, reigns over the Roman Empire for almost all of the 7th century. Um, uh, 
And then finally, uh, his last descendant uh, to sit on the throne, uh, Justinian II, is deposed in the year 695. Um, now, that we should just say, um, and that then leads to a period of complete chaos um, uh, in which there are seven emperors in the course of a couple of decades. <laughs> and uh, finally, the, uh, the, the, the throne is seized by the Emperor Leo III in the year 717. And at the very moment that he seizes the throne, uh, he manages to get hold of, um, uh, well, he, he gets hold of Constantinople at the very moment it's about to be uh, sacked by Islam. So, so this is what's often known as the second Arab siege of Constantinople from 717 to 718. Now, at the moment, among historians, there's a big controversy about whether or not this really is the second Arab siege of Constantinople, because it's become fashionable to deny that the first Arab siege of Constantinople ever happened. <laughs> now, now it's, it would be too complicated to explain all the arguments as to whether it did happen or not. But, but it was supposed, it's generally up to until recently, was, a, was held by historians to have occurred between 674 and 678. Right, um, and it was also thought that this this kind of secret weapon of the Romans uh, called Greek fire was what was used in order to, in order to, to break the first Arab siege of Constantinople. Now, Greek fire some, is a sort of napalm type invention, yeah. where, where these Byzantine or Roman um, uh, galleys would fire out of these funnels. Uh, and nobody quite knows how they made it. There are various theories as to what, what, what they did, but it wouldn't be extinguished by water. So they would fire out these funnels, and it would stick to the to the um, enemy ships and uh, and to the enemy sailors and soldiers. And then they would they would uh, be screaming their heads off, and their ship would be sinking. They would jump in the water, and it still wouldn't go out. And it was a extremely useful thing, and uh, it was very helpful. What because the most vulnerable part of Constantinople surrounded on three sides by water mm -hmm. but um it has uh, there are these two peninsulas which which uh, stick down into the Bosphorus on the larger of which the city of Constantinople is built and uh the the smaller of which uh, almost touches um the bottom of the larger peninsula and between the two is an area of water called the Golden Horn, which makes this amazing natural harbour. Um, and uh, but the the walls of Constantinople that face onto that natural harbour are much less uh, defensible than all the other walls. Because um, and so uh, so it's it's um, yeah it's is this kind of naval defence is very important because if the Golden Horn were to fall to a besieging army, then then the city itself might fall, as it did eventually in 1453. They yes. Yeah, We'll get to, well, we won't get to that actually, but they 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 um they rolled they rolled ships over the smaller peninsula using logs. It was pretty amazing, hmm. pretty impressing, I think, for the people in Constantinople. But anyway, um, <laughs> so um, so the, anyway, so so according to the traditional account, the first Arab siege is lifted uh, using this secret weapon. But but uh, there's a, a big bunch of modern historians who think that this may be a confusion and that they've attributed things that happened later on to this earlier period and that really the first really big siege of Constantinople was in 717 and that that was when Greek fire was was uh, was introduced to the Arabs and um, and so th this siege went on uh, from 717 to 718 under this this emperor who just seized power after this crazy civil war that's been going on for ages and uh, and he eventually manages to lift the siege. Various clay tricks them, uh, apparently tricks them into burning down their own food supplies, which is pretty clever. Um, and uh, and he he burns their ships to the ground, etc., etc. And eventually he he manages to to lift the siege of the city. And um, but the situation of the Romans after the siege is still bad, right? It's not it's not like they then chase the Arabs all the way back to Mecca and have a big party in Jerusalem. Uh, they're, they're still clinging on by their fingernails, right? And 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 as it were, they they they've just got time to to kind of catch breath at this point and look around them and suddenly notice that the the great Roman Empire is now an absolutely tiny uh, territory uh, in comparison to what it used to be and to kind of ask themselves, well, why, how, what did that happen? Because, you know, they're always referring to themselves as the ever-victorious, God-preserved emperor, etc., etc. And you, now you look around yourself and there haven't been any victories for quite a long time and the, the nearest thing to a victory that you've had recently is to prevent yourself all being slaughtered in a siege. Um <laughs> So, so it's not it's not looking great, um, uh, and and they began to ask themselves 
what was causing this and this seems to be what led to the rise in iconoclasm now the the last um emperor of heraclius's dynasty uh, justinian the second who was deposed in um uh 695 he seems to have been um uh he seems to have been more um uh, more, more in denial about the reduced circumstances of, of the Roman Empire. He, he thought, well, I'm called Justinian. I'll do all the same sort of things as Justinian did. I'm going to win loads of victories. I'm going to build lots of buildings, and I'm going to hold an ecumenical council and all this kind of stuff. And uh, and he, he was, I mean, it's again hard to tell because you know the history of his reign was written by his enemies. But he seems to have been a little bit crazy. Um, uh, it's it's not completely clear, but he, um, he, he. Uh, he, well, he, it's an amazing life he had. And he was deposed and he came back again. He, he went off into exile, ran off to these, this barbarian tribe in the Crimea called the Khazars, married the, the, the Khan of the Khazars' sister uh, in exchange for the Khan, agreeing to put him back on the throne in, in Constantinople. Then the then the, the usurping emperor sent him a, a blank check if you just kill Justin in the second instead. Justin in the second heard about it in time, escaped, found another group of barbarians to help him, uh, the, Bul the Bulgars this time, and then managed to get himself back into Constantinople and then started killing everybody who had anything to do with his original deposition and then eventually got killed and deposed again. And, uh, and there was a more of a, the civil war carried on and, the, and eventually ended up with this siege and Leo III. But there was no real occasion to have a, an ecumenical council um, because uh, there was there was nothing. There were no heresies knocking around. But he just felt like having an ecumenical council, a bit like John the Twenty Third. Um, and uh, so he, uh, but he couldn't think of any reason to have it. So he decided to have a pastoral council. He didn't ring any bells. Uh, but he, so he, um, uh, so he decided. Um, that he would, uh, because there hadn't been any canons, you know, no canon law, no discipline had been issued by the previous two ecumenical councils, Constantinople II and Constantinople III. So he said, well, we need to have a council, a pastoral council, you know, in order to in order to produce a bit more canon law. So so this is what they decide to do. And um, it's called the Council in Trullo, which was a part of a hall in the imperial palace and um and there were basically no there was no latin representation at all at that council and um uh and so as a result they canonized as part of canon law loads of customs which were only observed in the east and were not observed in the west uh, and this caused a huge row so the pope sergius um uh, he 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 rejected the uh the um this council in Trullo and uh, Justinian tried to have him arrested, but he was unable to do so. And, and this again, this shows the, the the lesser and lesser control that the um, that the emperors in Constantinople are able to exercise over Rome. Uh, so so he so so Justinian was infuriated that he was unable to have uh, unable to have um, the pope arrested. Um, but one of the things, I mean, so so it, it, it attacked various different Latin customs. Um, but uh, one of the things they did was canonize the Greek custom slash abuse uh, of um, having married people who make use of marriage um, uh, being amongst the presbyteral clergy, right? Um, uh, so, in fact, that's the first time in the history of the church that there is an official declaration uh, that it's okay for priests who are married to make use of marriage. So, so the Council in Trullo is a big... Uh, a big question in regard to arguments over clerical celibacy. Um, so the classic Western account is basically that you always had clerical continence, um, uh, that, that if someone was ordained to the priesthood, they could never again make use of marriage, even if they were married. Mm -hmm. uh, you, if you weren't married, then you were celibate. If you weren't, if you were married, you were perfectly continent. And, uh, and then slowly over the course of the fourth century, um, this wasn't working anymore. Um, uh, clerical babies were turning up um, uh, that weren't supposed to be turning up. And uh, so as, as a result, they, um, uh, the, the Latins stopped ordaining married men because they couldn't enforce the discipline of clerical continence. And the Greeks stopped enforcing the discipline of clerical continence. But they never actually said they were stopping enforcing the difficult the discipline. For hundreds and hundreds of years, they just didn't. And then finally, they'd sort of forgotten that they ever had. And uh, and they and they, they they decreed that this is how things were supposed to be at the Council in Trullo. But because the Latins had responded in the opposite way, they they got very irritated when they found out about it. So 
this sounds a bit like a kind of triumphalist Latin account of what happened, but it's not really, because if you think about it, in, in the very early church, um, uh, uh, you had lots and lots of married priests. It's just that they they, they completely abstained from conjugal relations. Mm-hmm. And so what, what the Latins did also was, was an innovation of having an exclusively uh, celibate, unmarried clergy. Um, uh, and what, what the Greeks eventually acquiesced in was also an innovation of no longer insisting on continence. They did insist on continence uh, prior to celebrating the liturgy, which is why there's always been a slightly inferior... Um, uh, well, uh, the, it's not been uh, the practice of, of, of daily mass mm-hmm. in the East has never been quite so universal. And sometimes people uh, latch onto this idea that it's that having the divine liturgy, as, as it's, you refer to in the Byzantine rite, um, every day is like un, un-Byzantine or un-Greek or whatever. But really, that's just a weird side effect of the fact that, that of this watered-down discipline of continence. But, but, but what it does mean is that the Greeks, in having a married clergy, do have preserved something which was a feature of the early church, having a married clergy. But they've lost something, universal continence of the clergy, which was a feature of the early church, which we've retained in in the latin tradition so um yeah and, and of course you'd, you you're not going to get that back if, if you ever to water that down in the roman right you'd never get it back again it would be a nightmare um uh, so so and and the the uh, the continence is more important than the um than the marriage because he who marries does well and he who does not marry does better as St Paul says um, but, um, uh, but but I mean it's it's still something precious which is retained by the Byzantine clergy uh, Eve, um, as, um, although the Roman rite has preserved something uh, more precious but but yeah so um, uh, so this shows the growing estrangement right very few people speak Latin in the in the uh, in Constantinople anymore, uh, they they they're not even aware of these disciplinary distinctions, and they get annoyed when the the Latins get annoyed about the Greeks speaking uh, treating the uh, their discipline as if it was the universal discipline. You can see that this sort of estrangement is is more and more taking place. Um, so the. Um, uh, so and 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 you see from from the failed attempt to um, uh, grab the Pope for refusing to accept the Council in Trullo that the power of the Emperor over over Italy is becoming weaker and weaker and weaker. So anyway, Leo the Third lifts the siege in seven seventeen seven eighteen, and uh, and then uh, then we have then he apparently embraces this heresy of iconoclasm. And I say apparently because there's another huge historical argument. This is this period is often called the Byzantine Dark Ages. This is why you can have disputes as to whether there actually was a first Arab siege of Constantinople, because the documentation is so poor for this period, because the empire was doing so badly. The, 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 there are controversies over the sort of things you think would be the basic agreed facts actually kicking up in this period. Um, and... Uh, when iconoclasm, when the heresy of iconoclasm was finally and definitively uh, defeated in in the in the Roman Empire, um, which was uh, is 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 an event celebrated in the Byzantine liturgy every year as the triumph of orthodoxy, which occurred in 843. Um, so when this final defeat happens, um, they then kind of went around and destroyed all the writings of the iconoclasts. Now, uh, one of the one of the effects of this is that we have even less documentation about this period than we might otherwise have and it also means that modern historians get hyper suspicious about the account that we do have because it's entirely written by the triumphant uh, iconodule faction so that the, the 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 catholic orthodox with a small o faction uh, which which triumphs um uh, so so as a result, you can be people are more suspicious. Also, because unfortunately, uh, history as a discipline is is becoming more and more infected with sort of silly rationalism. Uh, but um, but people are more and more suspicious about um, uh, about the the iconic duel. So the good guys account of what happened during the iconoclastic controversy. So so the whole big broad scope of the iconoclastic controversy is from seven well. Um, 726 until 843 okay mm-hmm. but the but the catholics triumph in the middle 
and then there's a kind of you know the empire strikes back and uh, and then you have uh, and then, then there's a second period of iconoclasm so so you have so 726 it begins then uh, then there's there's a catholic victory with the second council of nicaea in 787 and then the iconoclasts are back in the saddle again in 814 and then they are finally squished once and for all in uh, 843 and um but then after that, um, that's kind of seen as sort of the end of all doctrinal controversies in the Orthodox Church. The reason why is because they then, shortly after that, more or less went into the schism, which they're still in now. <laughs> so they've never. So there are plenty of other errors which um, which arose in 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 the Byzantine tradition after that point. It's just they've never been definitively condemned because they have no functioning magisterium because they've been in schism. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so, I mean, uh, strictly speaking, there is a schism that breaks out uh, 20 or something years after after that, uh, which then gets resolved. Um, and then there's a period of relative peace for 150 years or so. And then the Great Schism as such of, um, of 1054 breaks out, um, which is the one that's, that was never properly resolved. But in fact, the Great Schism was really just a breaking out again of that schism that occurred in the um in the ninth century uh and um uh, which we'll deal with when we get to the fourth council of constantinople um so anyway so now what we're looking at what what ends with the second council of nicaea is the first period of iconoclasm um so what happens then leo the third he wants to know why god has allowed or the you know the vast majority of the roman empire to fall into the hands of these annoying arabs right um and uh, he's managed to rescue uh, constantinople from this from this terrible siege but he hasn't then gone on to push back the arabs and win back huge chunks of roman territory so so he's obviously very concerned as to what it is that is annoying god so much and he seems to have, uh, so what I'm going to give you is the classic account, which there's some dispute about because of the fact that the evidence is is, is shaky and all the, all the baddies writings have been destroyed. So we've only got the goodies perspective on it. Um, so the classic account is that in 826, there was a great big earthquake and um, uh, the island of Thera, um, uh, now I'm trying to remember what's, what, what, that, what that island is called now, but anyway, um, uh, explodes. It has a bloody big volcano in the middle. It's now like you can now you see like a ring of shattered islands around what was the volcano, <laughs> and the island. In fact, it was already beginning to explode. Uh, the the volcano was beginning to erupt when the Arabs were running away, having failed in the siege of of um, seven eighteen. Uh, they were miserable. There were terrible storms. They had all sorts of difficulties. They were trying to go home, and 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 then suddenly, burning hail started raining down on them. And that was actually the beginning of the eruption of this volcano. Yeah. Then, Time to leave. <laughs> yeah, so, the the full on eruption happens in um, seven twenty six, and um, uh, and it seems that this crystallized. The classic account is that this crystallized Leo the Third's musings about what it is that might have annoyed God and led to all these defeats. And what he's the what he seems to have come up with is the idea that Christians shouldn't be venerating images of Christ and the saints, and that this is a violation of the um, of the commandment not to uh, make any graven images or bow down to them. Uh, the the uh, end of the first commandment, if you're a Catholic, and the second commandment, if you're a Protestant, um, uh, and. Um, uh, and that this um, this is greatly irritated God, and that He sent these Arabs as a sort of scourge on on the Christians in order to punish them for their idolatry. Now, uh, now the question is, how on earth could He have got this idea into His head? Um, because I mean, we know from uh, from Christian archaeology that images have been used in Christian worship from the very, very, very beginning of the history of the Church. You know, they're there in the catacombs, um, and uh, the fathers. Uh, you know they're, they're often very rude about idolatry and 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 uh, but but they, when they talk about idolatry they're they're talking about the uh, magical beliefs of pagans that statues actually are Aphrodite or Apollo or, or Vulcan or, or Jupiter or whatever mm. they're not talking about uh, um, reverence being shown to objects which depict um, uh, um, either either Christ or the saints mm -hmm. 
and uh, you can prove that from the from the writings of the earlier fathers and um and even the uh, even the iconoclasts themselves didn't object to reference being shown to the book of the gospels uh to reference being shown to the blessed sacrament so so there was no um so they clearly of course the blessed sacrament is our lord uh real and really and truly and substantially but but the book of the gospels isn't so it's clear that the book of the gospels uh signifies the one whose words it contains and and by referencing the physical object the gospel book we are intending to reference christ so so the so the iconoclasts uh, in some way must have understood this idea that you can reverence something which isn't actually christ in order to reverence christ okay mm -hmm. um uh and 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 we we had always done this right uh, the christians always done this through the history of the church um but then suddenly leo the third at the beginning of the eighth century he starts thinking that this is greatly angering god and is a violation of the first commandment so 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 how could this occur well it seems that this happened because um uh well he Leo III's family uh, came from a part of the empire that was occupied by Islam anyway, right? So, so he was, he was very, he felt very viscerally uh, the, the fact that, um, that he was, uh, that, that God had taken all these territories away from them and, and had a strong sense of the, of the absence of, uh, of figurative um, devotional images in Islam. Um, but uh, so that that's how it relates to why he personally would have been particular felt particularly about it but i mean you can see just from the 1960s um that it's quite easy to come up with some story about the fact that we always did this or we never did this even though everybody knows that's not true you know they say oh yeah originally everybody used to sit on beanbags during the eucharist and the priest would talk to you across a table and then that was all changed by the tridentin mass We're, right okay or, or whatever because it's complete nonsense right so so of course people don't don't personally remember um what the fourth and the fifth and the sixth century looked like so they'd have to actually have read you know saint basil the great and of course one of the problems who says, you know, by, uh, mentions in a throwaway remark that we always face East when we're celebrating the liturgy, right? Um, uh, but of course, people don't. I was talking to a colleague of mine the other day, and he was saying, well, one of the problems with reconstructing very early Christian worship is, is, is a lot of the stuff is sermons. Everybody's actually there. So in the sermon, the father of the church who's given the sermon isn't going to describe what's going on in the room for the benefit of posterity. He's preaching a sermon. So you're, you're rummaging around for throwaway remarks. So so the um so it's quite easy uh, for people to suddenly get spooked and and believe that oh we've wickedly been doing this thing only recently and god is angry about it that we shouldn't really be doing when in fact we've always been doing it everywhere since the very beginning um the other thing is that there, there genuinely was an increase in the uh, in the amount and the prominence and the external honour given to uh, sacred images in the liturgy, and the, the reason for that is because paganism was dying out. Mm -hmm. So, like, if if you're, I mean, even to this day, um, partly because it's been a bit frozen in aspect because of the iconoclastic controversy, but 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 in the West we're much more comfortable with statues and things. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and whereas, whereas in the East, they, they kind of like two, di you know, two-dimensional images. Really, um, uh, they, they get a bit nervous that it's that it might be too much seen as idolatry. But of course, we don't think of it as idolatry. Um, uh, it isn't idolatry. Um, but um, of course, the Protestants say that it is, and people who come from Protestant countries, because Protestants used to say it is, of course, they don't really bother anymore. But um, but the um, the people who come from countries where there's a lot of Protestantism tend to be more um, concerned about. About these things so so famously english catholics in the 19th century would go on holiday to italy and they'd see like statues of our lady wearing you know 10 different dresses and and and, and, and you know 12 different tiaras for different times of the year and and, uh, and italian ladies prostrating themselves in front of them weeping and stuff and the english catholics would be a little bit nervous because they're, they're their mores are more restrained because they're surrounded by people who think that what they are doing is idolatry mm -hmm. already. You see, I mean, so the reverse thing had been happening in the Roman Empire. In the meantime, uh, there were fewer and fewer and fewer pagans uh, actually committing idolatry all the time. So people's nervousness that what we do might be confused with idolatry was going down. And as a result, the flamboyance of the liturgical art, which was being employed by by the Christians, was going up and up and up and up and up. And um, 
So, so now, by the time we get to Leo the Third's time, it was quite plausible to say that that uh, oh, actually, this is all a complete novelty, and we never used to do this, um, and this is why the Muslims are winning all the battles, right? So, so. Anyway, so Leo III convinced himself that this is what's going on. And as I say, this is the standard account. Uh, he's supposed to have uh, decreed that a particularly prominent icon of our Lord uh, over a gate to the Imperial Palace should be taken down. And this is supposed to have, in, in uh, 726, and this is supposed to have, have, have triggered a riot of outraged uh, um, uh, simple faithful seeing the, the trashing of their, of, of their icons. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, now uh, he then ramps up the degree of his assault on on uh, the use of sacred images up until the end of that decade, up to um, uh, seven seven thirty, and then um, uh, to the annoyance of the patriarch Germanus of Constantinople, who then uh, who then either resigns or is um, deposed. Um, for refusing to accept the new iconoclastic imperial policy, and um, and then uh, and then the Pope uh, summons a council to say that this is all nonsense, um, uh, and 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 the Latins aren't going to go along with it, and um, uh, Leo tries to deal with this and 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 you know gra- grab the Pope or discipline him, and um, and he's unable to do so. And because the reach of the emperor is, is is now purely nominal over central Italy, so instead he retaliates financially and uh, jurisdictionally. What he does is he he now he gives to his new iconoclast patriarch of Constantinople jurisdiction over all of those parts of Europe which the pope traditionally held, but which are in the uh, Byzantine Empire. So he gives him jurisdiction over Sicily and southern Italy. Of course, he has absolutely no right to do this. The the pope retains jurisdiction but but he's effectively unable to exercise it because the government is 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 backing up its its pro iconoclast bishops instead um and he gives him jurisdiction over um illyricum so that's that's the balkans basically mm-hmm. um so so the and he takes away the pope's lands so so the um uh, uh leo iii was strapped for cash anyway um uh and so he was annoyed about the fact that um that that ecclesiastical lands were immune from taxation um so he he takes he confiscates he he cancels the immunity for taxation and confiscates large chunks of the pope's lands in southern italy and sicily which were um which were a, a big part of the papal revenue so that's caused a big problem for the popes now um uh um what the um uh the, the modern historians who, who kind of question this narrative, um, they, they, they try and claim that a lot of this is projected backwards and that in fact uh, the, 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 that Leo III was just arming and ahhing and expressing his private opinions about iconoclasm and this was causing controversy but he, hadn't, he wasn't so heavy-handed and that the dispute with the Pope was really over this property question rather than over iconoclasm. But there's no actual evidence of that. That's all sort of attempted hermeneutic of suspicion and reverse engineering basically <laughs> um uh now um uh in um uh 741 leo the third dies and um uh, and he is succeeded by his son constantine the fifth after a brief civil war which constantine the fifth wins and constantine the fifth is a much more fanatical iconoclast and even even modern historians have to admit that, that, that he's definitely vigorously pursuing iconoclasm in this period um and that he is some um, and 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 he uh uh, for example, there's a very famous um, uh, the Church of of the Holy Peace Hagia Irene, uh, which is uh, which was the where the um, uh, where the original where the Council of the First Council of Constantinople was held, um, uh, is rebuilt in his reign, and uh, and you can still see it. It's and it's very bare with just like a plain cross in the apse, right? So so that's the kind of shows the 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 the, the iconoclastic style of architecture. Um, which is adopted during this period, he really turns on the monks. He famously 
destroys many monasteries and seizes their land, and he he drags uh, monks and nuns out into the Hippodrome in Constantinople uh, and performs joke marriage ceremonies between them in order to humiliate them and and uh, and hold uh, the ideals of monasticism up to ridicule. Uh, and he is a famous uh, martyr, Saint Stephen the Younger, who. Um, who died in 784 or 785, um, uh, who's executed uh, for resistance to iconoclasm. So, so it gets very heavy handed um, and he holds a very, very large council uh, in order to endorse, uh, in, endorse the iconoclastic heresy. Um, uh, the, um, uh, now, the, the, this council uh, had um, over 300 people attended it, more, more even according to the even according to the estimates of of, of orthodox writers uh the the iconoclastic latrocinium um uh, of hurea which is part of the imperial palace in 754 is um is i'm just trying to check it was yes 338 bishops right are supposed to have attended it and there's only 318 bishops supposed to have attended the council of nicaea so he has uh, he has some you know it's, it's impressive he doesn't have he doesn't have the patriarchs on his side, though, which is so, which which bumps up the importance of the patriarchs even more in the minds of uh, of, of of those who hold to the orthodox faith mm-hmm. afterwards, because obviously Alexandria and Antioch are outside of his control, um, and Rome is outside of his control at that point. In fact, in 750, um, uh, he loses control of Rome itself permanently, de jure as well as de facto, um, and. Um, and Ravenna is also conquered by the Lombards. So the whole of Byzantine Northern Italy is now lost. Um, now, uh, um, eventually in uh, 775, um, uh, the um, uh, Constantine V dies. He's succeeded by his son, Leo IV. Uh, Leo IV only reigns for five years. He dies in 780, and he's then succeeded by his nine-year-old son, Constantine VI. Um, now, Constantine the Sixth is uh, is doesn't govern in his own name because he's only nine years old. So, so his he the, the the empire is governed by his mother, the Empress Irene. Now, now the Empress Irene is secretly a Catholic. She's from Athens. I don't know if that means that she's more likely to be secretly Catholic. But anyway, she's from Athens, um, and uh, and she she secretly does hold to to uh, I, I to the the the, the um, preservation of the icons, and. Um, the patriarch Paul, who's been the iconoclastic patriarch under Leo IV, uh, he says to Irene, look, you know, it's all rubbish. I've just been saying that iconoclasm is good because I wanted to keep my job. Obviously, I'm going to have to resign, but um, because, uh, you know, this has not been a heroic moment for me, um, but so you're going to need to replace me. But um, uh, but uh, do call an ecumenical council and sort this all out, right? Contact the Pope, call an ecumenical council and sort it all out. Um, and um, so, so he, uh, so she does. Uh, she contacts um, Pope Adrian the first, and Pope Adrian the first agrees to the summoning of the Second Council of Nicaea. Um, they hold it in Nicaea because there's a significant iconoclastic party in the Roman state, uh, including particularly in the army. The the the, uh, the mainstay of the army is is uh, what's now Turkey, so it's the area um, immediately uh, bordering on the Muslims. So they're the ones who are most concerned about the fact that God might be smiting them for idolatry. So they're, they're the most fertile ground for um, converting people to iconoclasm. Uh, when they begin, they try to begin the Seventh Ecumenical Council in Constantinople, um, and, and, they, and the sort of trouble kicks off because there's too many iconoclasts around. So that's why they, they hop across the Bosphorus to Nicaea and, and hold the council there instead. Um, and some um, uh, bad Rocky jokes in my head right now. Hey, yo, Adrian, we can't do it here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, yes, I'm just gonna I just want to call up the, um, uh, the 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 anathemas. There's four anathemas of the Second Council of Nicaea, which I've got put away here somewhere. Um, and um, uh, so they they. Um, so the her- so iconoclasm is rejected, um, obviously, and um, uh, and these uh, there's there's a, there's a discursive opening section of the decree, which sort of goes into detail about the fact that we refer the worship given to the object to the original that it's a depiction of, mm-hmm. um, 
and uh, and then there is some then there's an actual um then there's the actual anathemas so so there's only four anathemas they're quite short if anyone does not confess that christ our god can be represented in his humanity let him be anathema if anyone does not accept representation in art of evangelical scenes let him be anathema if anyone does not salute such representations as standing for the lord and his saints let him be anathema um, and in fact, in the Byzantine liturgy to this day, they usually have an icon set up uh, just next to where the priest is distributing communion um, so that he can see that the faithful who are coming up kiss the icon before receiving communion. So you can make sure they're not an iconoclast. Um, uh, so he's, so I, I, mean, I think it, now it's purely conventional. I have, I've attended Byzantine liturgies and forgotten to kiss the icon in the past probably because I was wrestling with one of my children um, uh, at the time um, <laughs> sorry <laughs> yeah well I, don't know. I didn't have yet been denied communion for um, <laughs> for for omitting to kiss the icon I normally do reverently kiss the icon in question um, uh, and and the fourth one is if anyone which is very interestingly relevant for those sorts of controversies in the 20th century that we were talking about if anyone rejects any written or unwritten tradition of the church let him be anathema rather splendid um, catch all anathema there um, <laughs> he has eliminated 80% of the church today <laughs> <laughs> so um, yes uh now let's look at the argument, right? So, um, so the argument's pretty serious, and I, I have the advantage that I have, I have a friend in Scotland who is a uh, who is a, a very, very full-on Calvinist, and absolutely believes in in iconoclasm down to the last dot and tittle. And so, so uh, in order to, in, I can get the uh, the iconoclastic point of view in in real life just by um, uh, by discussing this uh, on on my trips to. Um, Scotland um, uh, but the um, so basically the argument which is more which is correct basically which is that uh, so according to Catholic doctrine uh, the, the fourth count fourth Lateran Council which we're we're way away from at the moment but the um, fourth Lateran Council in 1215 solemnly defined that God is more unlike than he is like anything that we say about him right mm -hmm. so um, so idolatry isn't just a question of images. I mean, concepts are also potentially idolatrous. If you think that God exactly corresponds to those concepts, then you've already you've already fallen into idolatry. And this is a uh, this is a, a point which is uh, particularly strongly emphasised in the writings of of Dionysius uh, or pseudo Dionysius, depending on your view on these questions. The Areopagite, um, uh, he. Um, he 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 very strongly emphasizes the fact that uh, what's called apophatic theology, which is that that you can only safely say things about God by 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 denying them of Him. Hmm. Okay, um, and um, uh, and he um, uh, because we can say that there's nothing that God can't do. There is no perfection that he lacks, etc., etc., um, and and this is called apophatic theology, right? Because you have to, because you have to remember that God is more unlike than he is like everything that we assert about him. Um, now, uh, so so on that basis, how can you avoid idolatry in general, right? Um, uh, even just by thinking about God. Um, uh, and of course, if and, and we can't just do apophatic theology because this, we, we might if we weren't Christians, but scripture is completely packed full of positive statements about God, which we obviously give assent to. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason why uh, the reason why we're able to do that without idolatry is because God made those statements, right? So God is infinite, oh, therefore only an infinite mind uh, can know God, only God is infinite, therefore only God can know God. So the only infinite mind is the divine mind. Um, but therefore God can make statements about himself which we need to understand are only analogous because they can't be taken uh, univocally, uh, as we say. So, so, so the classic example of the difference between uh, univocal and an, and, a, an, and an analogous statement would be uh, if you talk about... Um, uh, two two cricket bats, right? There's a cricket bat over there. There's a cricket bat over there, right? Then 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 you've used the word bat univocally. It means exactly the same thing in both cases. So if I say, you know, I have brown hair and my daughter has blonde hair, right? Then then I'm using the word hair 
univocally. Okay, but if I say um, if I say there's a cricket bat over there, and there's a fruit bat over there, that that's um, that's equivocation. The word bat has there's there's nothing in common. They, they just sound the same. It's it's punning essentially. Um, but then between that, you have analogous predication, right? Um, uh, so you could talk about my left foot, or you could talk about the foot of Mount Sinai, okay? Um, and and it, it's because the the, the the foot of Mount Sinai is to the summit of Mount Sinai in some way has 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 the same relation in some sense as 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 my foot has to my head right um, and and therefore we can use the word foot even about two radically different realities okay so um, so we can understand uh, we can understand the um, uh, the 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 positive truths which are being taught us in Scripture about God. Uh, through analogy but the reason why uh, but but of course we're able to do that in regard to the foot of Mount Sinai and my left foot because of the fact that I know what a mountain is like myself from my own personal experience and I know what I'm like myself from my own personal experience so I can establish the analogy and know that it isn't misleading or isn't disguising mere equivocation uh, whereas some um, in the case of uh, in the case of God that's not possible for us we just don't know God in that sense, I mean, as as because uh, we don't have the beatific vision, so as um, Thomas Aquinas says, the divine substance surpasses every form that the intellect reaches, and it is therefore impossible to apprehend it by knowing what it is. We must therefore proceed by stating what it is not. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so he's talking about that on on the level of natural reason, um, uh, but God can state analogously things about him that are because he knows himself. Right. So my Calvinist friend who rejects uh, all religious imagery, um, she rejects that because um, because she says that uh, that there are no revealed images of Christ. Okay, Um, uh, so in a way, uh, it's a kind of sola scriptura statement. Mm -hmm. And um, so so the. uh, it becomes very important for the iconodules, and it's very important in Eastern iconography uh, because they went through the fire of this controversy to emphasize uh, miraculous images of Christ that, that were, were generated by our Lord himself mm-hmm. um, and uh, also images which are allegedly painted by St. Luke uh, become very important as well because it's particularly relevant because he's actually an evangelist so you actually have an author of one of the scriptural texts mm-hmm. um, uh, providing these images of Our Lady um, all I can say is that if if all the images attributed to St. Luke really are by St. Luke then he had a very eclectic style but anyway um, uh, <laughs> perhaps some of them are um, and um, so uh so uh, I remember discussing this with my Calvinist friend, and she said, um, uh, I, I pointed out the, the opening passage of Ezekiel, um, uh, this, this clearly symbolic representation of God occurs, in this terrifying sort of weird vision that that crazy guy in the 70s said was an alien landing. Um, and, uh, um, and, and at the end of that vision, Ezekiel sort of hurls himself down on his face in front of this apparition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I said to my Calvinist friend, well, was either A, Ezekiel committing idolatry, or B, uh, does God have legs made of bronze? Because it seems like those are the only two possibilities. Um, uh, if we say that it's not possible to uh, give veneration to something which merely really merely symbolizes um uh uh our lord and um uh i mean basically uh her counter to that is that we just don't have um we don't have authorized pictures of that vision so so it's all right for ezekiel because god generated the vision but ezekiel when he when he you know when ezekiel or his scribe wrote down his prophecies they didn't do glossy color pictures on the facing page for so therefore so it makes sense i mean yeah absolutely so i mean it makes sense as an argument uh uh, so long as you accept the the false and original principle of sola scriptura um and uh, and so it's, it's interesting that it's there that the fourth anathema of Nicaea is any if anyone rejects any written or unwritten tradition of the church let him be anathema so, I mean, um, uh, now, um, uh, the, um, uh, the, um, 
the uh, the the shroud of Turin. A lot of people who who enthusiastic students of the shroud of Turin, um, they often uh, identify almost always uniformly, in fact, identify the shroud of Turin with with an object called the Mandelion, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, which was. Um, greatly venerated in the Byzantine Empire and which was discovered in Edessa in 525 mm -hmm. um, and uh, there's a there's an interesting um, there's a a, um, uh, a syndonologist an expert on the shroud uh, from Austria called Wolfgang Wallstein who's actually the um, the grandfather of um, uh, Pater Edmund Wallstein who, who does the Josias uh, website I don't know if come across that which uh, is on uh, Catholic um, political and social thought, um, but he's a Cistercian monk. But his his grandfather is a um, is a uh, an academic uh, a jurist, and uh, but he's also a syndonologist, and uh, he he he's of the view that uh, that the that the sh that the actual burial shroud of our Lord, which he considers to be the shroud of Turin, was kept in um, in Rome up until the fourth century, because the last person we see with it, of course, in scripture is St. Peter. Mm. Um, and uh, there's a period in Rome from the conversion of Constantine in, in 312 until the uh, reign of Julian the Apostate in around 361, who reverted to paganism, um, when there are lots of mosaics put together in Rome. And in those mosaics, our Lord is shown with a beard with two points at the bottom, very much as he is shown in the Shroud of Turin. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then he disappears, um, uh, th th that, that representation of him disappears. So very early Christian art, our Lord is depicted perhaps even symbolically as, as a, a sort of beardless shepherd youth. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in fact, that, that, that image is used for, as the, as the um, sort of logo for the catechism of the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. um, but it appears in lots of different mosaics and, and, and paintings. Uh, and then in this sh short period after the conversion of Constantine in Rome, there's this, this, he starts to be depicted much more as we see him now. And, um, and then that stops again, and then it's rediscovered uh, with the discovery of the Mandelion in Edessa. And also the, the very famous uh, Sinai icon of our Lord, which people have often, you can map the features of it onto the Shroud of Turin. It's very interesting. Um, so, so this idea that, um, uh, this idea that um, our Lord is, uh, that there are these divinely miraculous or divinely guaranteed images of him is, is, um, is very important to the to the iconoclastic uh, argument, as it were, that there is a tradition. But I think the killer argument, if you were arguing at someone to, about this question with someone who believed in sola scriptura, is really that um, is really that you can't read the New Testament or even any part of Scripture without imagining what you're reading. Right? Mm -hmm. You can, you can't read the story of our Lord curing. Simon's mother-in-law without the the image of a mother-in-law in a house in Capernaum appearing in your head right so so if if the argument were really correct that would essentially mean you were committing idolatry just by reading scripture <laughs> I, I i had a colleague once also in Scotland who said that he was he was the most perfect form of protestant because he he never even read the bible because it would be a work if he read the bible <laughs> And so, so, so that this would, um, this. I mean, he was being slightly satirical, but the, but the, um, but uh, the, um, but this is this would also, um, this also follows. If you see, I mean, in a certain sense, if 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 you, if you, if you, it's not just sola scriptura. Not just sola sola fide, sorry, which 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 in, in this joke of my colleague uh, implies that he shouldn't read the Bible, but sola fide ultimately on this argument would imply that you shouldn't read the Bible because you can't read the scriptures without imagining what it is you're reading when you read them, yeah. um, and therefore you'd essentially be committing idolatry. So, and you see that addressed in the second anathema: if anyone does not accept the representation in art of evangelical scenes, let him be anathema. Right, but the, but the image that the iconographer or the liturgical artist paints on the wall of the church or, or on or on the board of the icon, it pre-exists in his mind, right? Mm -hmm. So he's already committing idolatry by the logic of the iconoclasts, uh, even when he's... Um, so, so we have to accept that these are, you know, in some sense, estimations, uh, they're guesses, and nobody's claiming that they're... We're not saying, we. I hope this is what you look like and that I'm not committing idolatry by thinking about this story, right? I mean, nobody's... That's an absurd suggestion. So obviously, obviously we realise that they are 
guesstimates mm -hmm. of the of of the appearance of these evangelical scenes. Uh, but we are and we are giving the worship of adoration to our divine Lord um, uh, through that. Just in the way that if I pick up a photograph of my family from my desk and, and kiss it, that doesn't mean that I'm you know uh, um, expressing my deep uh, paternal love for, um, for for this photographic paper in front of me. Obviously, I'm expressing my love for the for the, the ones depicted. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yes, it's it's true that that um, I actually know the originals in a way that I don't know um, I don't know uh, Almighty God in his his own substance and nature, um, but he has revealed himself to me, and and anyone who believes in Christianity has to hold that that is the case uh, through divine revelation, as expressed in in other among other places, Scripture, and uh, and that that involves images at least appearing in my mind, and therefore it must be okay for those images to be to be written down on 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 paper or painted on a wall or, or on a piece of board, and for me to give them the necessary reverence. Mm -hmm. um, so that's essentially the argument against iconoclasm. In this first stage of iconoclasm, uh, the arguments are most thoroughly made by um, uh, St. John of Damascus, mm -hmm. who, as I say, is living under Islamic rule, and therefore the emperors can't get him for refusing to go along with their doctrines. Um, uh, and uh, so, so his writing is the most important. It's uh, Theodore the Studite becomes the most important writer in the second phase of, of iconoclasm. Um, but there we are. So um, I suppose one last thing I should say is that um, uh, the reason, uh, the re another reason for the big separation of, of, of East and West at this time is the greater and greater power of the kingdom of the Franks and, uh, and, and the, their problems begin to kick off because the Franks are sort of fed up of being officially second fiddle to the uh, emperor in Constantinople. And so they start to make rumblings and grumblings about accepting the acts of the Second Council of of, of Nicaea because they're looking for a theological fight which they'd quite like to pick with the Byzantines in order to declare their independence from the emperor but um, that's really uh, that's just a sort of you know a trailer for what's going to happen preview for our next time yes it's always somebody trying to ice skate uphill <laughs> <laughs> Doc appreciate it as always <laughs>